The cable television channels that are devoted to American history may seldom portray it. We'll come to the reason for that. But it's with us all the same, the Vietnam War. Today, historian James Wright and his new book, Enduring Vietnam. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Historian James Wright served from 1998 to 2009 as the 16th president of Dartmouth College. Before beginning his academic career, Dr. Wright served for three years in the United States Marine Corps. He enlisted at the age of 17, and he has returned often to the concerns of American veterans, expanding the enrollment of vets at Dartmouth, for example, and sitting on the boards of bodies such as the Semper Fi Fund and the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Dr. Wright is the author of half a dozen works of history, including Those Who Have Borne the Battle, A History of America's Wars and Those Who Fought Them, and just published, here to discuss it today, Dr. Wright's new book, Enduring Vietnam, An American Generation and Its War. Jim Wright, welcome. Glad to see you, Peter. May I offer one just a slight uh, correction? Footnote. No, not a nope. correction. All right. I did serve in the Marines for three years, but I was not in Vietnam. I was in the Marines from 1957 to 1960. I'm very careful to make certain that people understand that I'm not saying I was a veteran no. of this war. All right. And by the way, you are a professional historian, so I should point out that this much of the book is footnotes. There are a lot of footnotes. All right. We want to get to the war itself. And I should stress that Enduring Vietnam is devoted to the combat experience, to the largely the infantry experience, although, of course, there are airmen you interviewed as well. But many of the viewers of this program, I realized with a start as I prepared for this show, will have been born, been born long after the war ended. And so we have to begin by making this conflict comprehensible. Why did Vietnam matter? How did we get into it? You note in Enduring Vietnam that President Eisenhower directed several billion dollars worth of American aid, a large portion of the aid he sent overseas to South Vietnam, and that President Kennedy sent advisors and troops into the country, so many that by the time he died, there were some 16,000 American troops in Vietnam. Why? Why, as far back as Dwight Eisenhower, did Vietnam matter to the United States? Well, I think that there was a, a great concern, surely in the 1950s, about uh, the Soviet threat, about communism. And uh, uh, by the 1950s, by the early 1950s, China, the Chinese communist regime, the People's Republic, had come to be playing into that. And uh, there was a concern about all of Southeast Asia, the old Indochina, after the French uh, finally pulled out of there. And in fact, in, in 1960, when Kennedy and, uh, and Nixon uh, debated, uh, the focus was as much on Laos as it was on uh, Vietnam. But there was a sense that uh, we had to make a stand someplace. Uh, President Eisenhower talked about the dominoes falling, but he was very cautious about uh, ground troops in Asia. Uh, many people were. General MacArthur, uh, the, the veteran, the rugged veteran of the uh, Korean War, uh, went to, to Kennedy's Pentagon and said, be careful about sending ground troops into, into Asia. And so mm -hmm. Kennedy was always very cautious about that. He said, no, no ground troops. But as you said, he suggested, for, he, he increased from several hundred to 16,000 
the number of troops there, and he put them in uniform. They really had been advisors in civilian attire uh, before that, but he put them in uniform. They began to play uh, a more active role uh, working with uh, the uh, the Vietnamese, and uh, it was uh, uh, it was an evolving war. So. I just want to stress the fundamental rationale, if I've got it right, in, and it's a drawing of lines. In Europe, uh, Berlin, we get West Berlin, the Soviets get East Berlin, we get Western Europe, the Soviets get Eastern Europe. There are lines being drawn in the policy of containment, containing the communists. Right. In Korea, there's a war fought, and it divides the country in two. Again, a line is being drawn. And so the notion is that in Vietnam, the communists and uh, there, were, there was substantial Soviet and Chinese support of the North Vietnamese. The notion is that we had to draw a line, right or wrong, the notion was that, we, that this was a place the United States had to draw a line. There right? was, and I think that the, the part of it was based on the, the economic and geopolitical importance of Southeast Asia, the rubber of, of the Mekong Delta. And uh, there was also this, this idea, if we don't fight them there, we'll be fighting in the, in the streets of, of Los Angeles. Right. And, and, and my concern, and, and I'm not a, a, a student uh, of, of, the, of the geopolitics and the diplomacy of the war, although I've tried to learn as much as I can from those students, and I do set the, the background, the context here for that war, is that, that everyone, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson, all said, we're not sure what we can do there but they couldn't back down. Uh, and I think that was, uh, that was the tragedy of it. When I say they couldn't back down, I mean that they thought they couldn't. I'm not suggesting that this was on autopilot and somehow they right. couldn't uh, change it. I any one of them could have selected a different option. Right. And during Vietnam, quote, in 1965, the war began. That's when the, the, American, Why, ground, do you say that, the American ground war began. In, in, in March of 1965, Lyndon Johnson sent uh, troops in, uh, American Marines into, into uh, Da Nang. And uh, that, that was the beginning of the American ground war. By summer, there were 50 or 60,000 there. They were starting to engage more and more. That first they went in to protect the airfields and they realized they had to go out on patrols in order to protect the airfields. And they're taking the initiative more themselves. And, and by late 1965, there's a major battle, the Battle of the Adrang Valley and uh, Americans are more and more involved. And Johnson had made a commitment by summer uh, to really increase the troops there. But, but the, the, the objective, and I think this is, this is so true in many ways of modern wars, Peter, uh, was not so much a military one. There is no equivalent in Vietnam, such as there's no equivalent in, in Iraq or Afghanistan mm -hmm. or, or even Korea of troops coming onto the beach at Normandy and sweeping through Western France and liberating Paris in the late summer. Which is why there are no cable television shows or, <laughs> or about great battles in Vietnam. There, there were no great set-piece battles. Well, I, I, is that I, fair? I focus on the Battle of, battle of Hamburger Hill. I read right. a chapter on it, and right. I, I do more on that battle than anything else in this book. And I did check with some people at West Point and the Army War College, and I said, do you teach the Battle of Hamburger Hill? in your military strategy courses, and they don't. They don't. Yeah. All right, before, I want to come to Hamburger Hill. So the war begins in 1965, and you've got, as you describe it in Enduring Vietnam, the analytically, you provide a kind of analytical framework. The first four years, there's a transition moment, and then the second and final four years. And during those first four years, as 
the American presence expands and expands and expands. I'm going to quote enduring Vietnam. It was President Johnson's assumption that the North Vietnamese would see the futility of supporting a war against the powerful American military force and that negotiations would then resolve the conflict in a way that preserved the independence of South Vietnam, close quote. Now, we know it didn't work. It didn't work. But just as a general matter, we, we, you said by 65, March of 65, we got something 50, 60,000. By the summer of 65. By the summer of 65, by uh, 68, we're up to over half a million troops. Yeah. Why didn't it work? It didn't what work. Did we get, what was wrong about Johnson's assumption? Uh, it would have taken, I would imagine, you'd, you'd have to really talk to some military scholars more about this, but it would have taken a couple million because you really had to, 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 to hold places. You couldn't just, just fight. And, and Vietnam is a large country. Uh, there was not an army in the field against uh, whom we were fighting. We had to go search for the enemy, and, and they would allow themselves to be found uh, when they were ready to allow themselves to be found. Uh, we would come in. Uh, generally, it was, it was a battle of, of company or, or, or platoon or even squad level. It was ambush. It was search and destroy. It was back and forth. There were no flag raisings on top of a hill. It was not about geography, and I don't mean that there weren't key geographical places that we wanted to control, but it was not about liberating an area. Right. There, there was no equivalent of raising the flag on Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima. We didn't raise flags there because we were very careful about not making it look like it was an American war. All right. The nature of the war itself, the basic statistics, the number of Americans who served in Vietnam, more than 2 million men, or some 10% of the American men who turned 18 during the conflict, killed in action, more than 55,000. Wounded, more than 150,000. And during Vietnam, quote, demographic breakdown of those people who served. The sons of blue-collar families, African-American, Hispanic, and Native American young men were disproportionately out in the jungles of Vietnam. Why? I think they were out in the jungles because they, they didn't have the, the schooling and the background to get themselves an MOS, a military occupational that would allow them to be a clerk back at a base. Uh, I think it was as, as simple as that. Uh, I would not want to suggest that the military uh, then did not have uh, racism, did not have uh, other factors that really had to do with are, are they prepared to do other things. And I think that uh, there were some pretty cold calculations there. People who joined the Marines, and, and there, just, there are only a few draftees in the Marine Corps because they were able to be sustained by enlistment. Somebody who joined the Marines knew pretty well that they were going to go into combat because that's what Marines were doing in Vietnam, and that's what they wanted to do. Those who were drafted into the Army, very few of them volunteered for combat. Many of them ended up in, uh, in the front lines. But I also do point out mm -hmm. in this book that uh, while this very much is uh, is a war that is that is predominantly disproportionately blue collar, uh, there are plenty of, of college dropouts or plenty of college graduates uh, who are out in the front lines and they weren't uh, they weren't only officers. Uh, it was it was a uh, the, the baby boomers war and part of part of what I want to try to correct here. You you go back to to say the summer of '67. Uh, the summer of uh, the summer of love, uh, right. you know, come to San Francisco with flowers in your hair. Uh, the uh, the Monterey uh, 
uh, pop festival. Uh, it's a summer in which there are major demonstrations all around the, the country, many of them racial, but it was the March on the Pentagon right. in, uh, in the fall of 1967. So there, 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 there's, a, there's a stereotype, an image of the baby boomer generation doing these things with flowers in their hair and Haight-Ashbury or, or marching on the Pentagon. But by 1967, more of the, of the, the, the casualties shifted in Vietnam and more of them were baby boomers. There are kids who were born after uh, 1946. Uh, by, by 67, 68, more and more of the kids who were fighting the war were baby boomers. 40% of the baby boom generation served in, in uniform. There are more baby boomers uh, uh, whose names are on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington uh, who were killed or died in Vietnam than uh, there were who went to Canada or went to prison for evading the draft. And I think we have to recognize that this generation uh, was, was more than flowers in the hair at, at, at Haight-Ashbury. It was a generation that went to war. These were the kids that grew up as the sons of World War II veterans. And I asked, I interviewed 160 people for this book, and I asked them, why did you go? Why, what, 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 what motivated you? And, and I can't tell you how many would say, well, my father was in World War II. I couldn't possibly tell him, no, I won't go. And they grew up in the 1950s in a world where they were reminded regularly of the Soviet threat. They had duck and cover drills in schools to be prepared for a nuclear attack. And they were reminded regularly that they had a responsibility uh, to step up and serve when they were asked to do that. Uh, Jack Kennedy in 1961 said the torch is passed to a new generation of Americans. He meant his World War II generation within a few years. His World War II generation had passed that torch onto their children. Uh, and these were the kids who were fighting in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So Tom Wolfe famously called the baby boom generation the me generation. And Jim Wright says, not quite. Not quite. The, the, there was that. Uh, you know, I, I would not want to deny some of the narcissism and the self-indulgence of the baby boom generation, but let's also recognize that they served. Jim, the draft. The draft is another, another component of the Vietnam experience that I think may simply be incomprehensible to some viewers of this conversation. That you write in Enduring Vietnam that there was virtually no ex no objection to the extension of the draft as late as 1965. The law said that the Congress had to re, uh, what, reauthorize Renew, the draft reauthorize every, every four years. Yeah. So the draft, what proportion of those who served in Vietnam were drafted as opposed to enlisted? I think it was a good question, and I can't pull up the exact figure now. It was less than half. It, it, the numbers increased right. as the war went on, and the number of draftees who were casualties increased significantly as the war went on, because draftees were more likely to be out in the front lines. But uh, the draft is something that many people don't understand today. Anyone born after 1955 has never faced the draft. I grew up in the 1950s. I enlisted in the Marines, but I could have been drafted. So I, I chose, I wanted to be a Marine, and I chose to enlist instead of that. Uh, that's not a choice, that, uh, that's not a decision. That's not a, a, a something that the, 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 the people born after 1955 have had to confront. We're talking about a significant proportion of, of our population. Mm. Jim, so much of enduring Vietnam, so much of enduring Vietnam is going to be hard to convey in this conversation because you interview, well, you just said that you interviewed dozens and dozens of people. You tell stories. The impact of the book comes through the layering of story after story. You, 
the reader really begins to feel the experience of Vietnam, the weight of it, through this accumulation. We can't do that on television, but you can tell some stories. Tell the story of Hamburger Hill, the, the battle for Hamburger Hill. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. In, in, in uh, May of 1969, under Operation Apache Snow, there was a decision made to try to clear out uh, that part of the Asha. The Asha Valley is that uh, huge valley up in what was South Vietnam. Uh, it's near Laos. It's within a few miles of Laos. It's nestled up near the corner. Quezon <laughs> and other places are north of there. But it's nestled up uh, in the northwestern part of South Vietnam. The North Vietnamese had pretty free rain there coming in from Laos. Uh, some people called it the warehouse area where they really kept all of their supplies. And the army said, okay, let's go in. Uh, let's take them out of there. They sent some Marines down from the north. And then the Army 101st Airborne Division uh, went in to Dong Ap Pia, which uh, the soldiers came to call uh, Hamburger Hill. Uh, they they anticipated having a battle there similar to most of these encounters, which was that we would go in somewhat massively as we did that time. The North Vietnamese would fight uh, heartily for up to 20 or 30 minutes. And the North Vietnamese knew that if they sustained the fight very long, that the Americans could bring in air power and artillery and firepower that the North Vietnamese simply couldn't match. So they would resist uh, quickly and then they would fade out of there. Uh, all of a sudden, they didn't uh, fade out of there. Uh, they stayed. And, and there had been some, some intelligence reports before that indicating that this might be the sort of place they might stay and fight. We, we didn't expect that. Uh, uh, I, I had a, 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 an interview with General uh, Weldon Honeycutt, Blackjack, who led the troops in there. And he said that the briefing that he had before they went in. Uh, they, they didn't have any real idea what they were going to encounter. The Americans who went in that day uh, that I interviewed said they'd never seen so many helicopters at once. And they said, this, this, this is something big happening here because we knew that there are a lot of North Vietnamese there. They got on the ground. Uh, they said, okay, we're gonna head up to the top of the hill. We should be there by 1400 hours. 1400 is two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, they were there by 1,400 hours, uh, 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 10 days later. Uh, most of them never made it to the top. Uh, some of these units that went in the first day had 70 and 80 percent uh, casualties uh, coming in. And uh, the North Vietnamese stayed and fought. Uh, they had good supplies there. They had tunnels. They had access to Laos. Uh, we couldn't come in with the massive ordnance that we might have otherwise. We couldn't bring in B-52s because our troops were right there close by. When we use B-52s tactically in Vietnam, our troops really need to be several miles away because it, it just was not right. that fine-tuned a weapon. And uh, we we're all right there uh, close together. It became a very controversial war because some soldiers were complaining about it. There was a story, you know, they said, Weldon Honeycutt just keeps sending us back up there. And uh, there was a story in the newspaper about it. Ted Kennedy uh, grabbed on this story. He was very critical of the military for sending Ted Kennedy, in. then a member of the Senate. He was a member of the Senate. And, uh, and, and it just became a very controversial battle. Uh, I interviewed uh, many of the people uh, who were there. And uh, uh, there are some, some remarkable stories. This one a young officer, Don Sullivan, from Massachusetts, uh, he had... He was going to be a Jesuit priest, and he uh, went to BU, and then he was drafted. And uh, Don Sullivan 
said when he was drafted, he went down to the, to the, to the local uh, draft board Army recruiting office and uh, they said, why don't you become an officer instead? You'll have to serve one more year. And he said, why would I want to do that? And they said, well, I'll tell you why, because you can either be an officer inside the club drinking a cold martini or you can be an enlisted man outside walking guard duty. And he said, well, I decided I'd be an officer. And so he went into Hamburger Hill. And uh, it was just vicious fighting there. And then when they were ordered to go up again on so the seventh or eighth day, already taken maybe half casualties in their platoon, uh, some of the men said, no, we're not going to go. Enough, enough already. Blackjack, Honeycutt can go himself. Damn it, we're not going up there. And uh, Sullivan said, you know, I don't, I'm not sure uh, what I could do. Nobody trained me to do if, if your troops appear mutinous. And uh, as one of the officers there said, what the hell can you do? Threaten to send them to Vietnam? If you, you know, <laughs> you, you. And so uh, Sullivan said he went over and picked up his pack and his weapon. And uh, one of the men said, so what, do you, what are you doing, Lieutenant? And uh, Sullivan said, well, I was told we're going to go up the hill again today, and I'm going to go up the hill again today. And they said, oh, damn it. Wait, we'll go with you. And uh, just then, as they're, as they're gathering up, uh, the North Vietnamese hit them with some mortar rounds on top, and it was over on the edge where they had some of their supplies that didn't injure any of the men but uh, it uh, hit near the, where they had some packs and, and equipment. And one of, they went over afterwards to pick up their equipment and this one soldier picked up his pack and it was soaking wet. And he had a can of fruit cocktail in there that he'd been saving because the sweet juice of fruit cocktail was a real delicacy up mm -hmm. there in the heat. He had been saving that. And uh, it, uh, the, the mortar shrapnel had punctured it. And he said, damn it. Let's go get those bastards. You see what they did to my fruit cocktail? So Sullivan said, sometimes it's a can of fruit cocktail that can motivate men to go up. Uh, the, and they did go up. And Sullivan was one of the first people to the top of the hill. But, but what you learn in, the, in these interviews, and, and this is true of World War II or, or any war, uh, Peter, you know, people aren't out there thinking about the, the stirring speeches back in Washington or anything else. They're, they're out there, they're scared, uh, they want to protect themselves, they want to protect their buddies. And this, this, you know, so the idea of a buddy right. means something in the military. It's not as personal as, as a friend back home you've known for years. Some buddies, they, they only knew each other by nickname, but there was a closeness. Right. And they would never do anything to embarrass themselves or to bring harm to their buddies. And they fought for this. We got Hamburger Hill after 10 days. Yes. How long did we hold it? We held it for maybe another uh, eight or 10 days, and the, they pulled out, which became very controversial. Uh, most of the men that I interviewed uh, were not that troubled by it. We were not into holding territory. Uh, and, and the idea of holding territory, remember Quezon, where the Marines had, had uh, really been surrounded a year earlier, and Lyndon Johnson feared it was going to be another Dien Bien Phu, right, where the, the where French, the French yes. had, had, had been surrounded by the Vietnamese. You know, if the only access to supply your troops was helicopter in and out, you're, and, and this was a few miles from Laos, it's a very vulnerable position. We went in to try to destroy the North Vietnamese network that was there. The Army said, we did that, we're pulling out. But because of so many casualties there because of the extended fighting, it became very controversial. You know, is this the nature of Vietnam? Colin Powell has a, has a wonderful story about uh, the Vietnam War. 
And uh, he went over first in January of 1963 as an advisor. He was one of Kennedy's advisor team. And uh, he was up in the Asha Valley with, a, with an ARVA, an Army of the Republic of Vietnam right. unit, up there. <clears throat> and the, uh, North, the, the, the South Vietnamese commander, a captain, said, this is a very important outpost. And uh, Colin Powell said, why is it important? What, what's the purpose of it? And he said, the purpose of this outpost is to protect this airstrip down below. And it was just a, it was a grass airstrip. And Powell said, what's the, what's the role of the airstrip? And the South Vietnamese commander said, it's to supply this outpost. <laughs> and, and Colin Powell said, you know, all he went back over again on another deployment in Vietnam when the fighting was very heavy. But he said it was probably as good an explanation of what they were doing over there as he ever heard. It was, okay. it was, it was not about taking territory. It was this sort of circular logic. We're, we're here to fight the enemy. The transition. Richard Nixon on May 14, 1969, quote, we have ruled out any attempt to impose a purely military solution on the battlefield, close quote. In other words, we're giving up any notion of winning, as you'd understand, as people had understood winning through most of human history. Yeah, yeah. You also note in Enduring Vietnam, I'm going to quote you, a January 1965 Gallup poll reported that 28% of Americans thought it would be a mistake to send troops to Vietnam by January 1969, that figure was 52%. So the public turns against the war. Richard Nixon, this circular reasoning, has, everybody now understands that what Lyndon Johnson was attempting just wouldn't work. Except Lyndon Johnson wasn't, he also, he never was as, as explicit All and right. direct and candid as Nixon was. But he knew there was no military solution there. The, the month after he sent the troops in, in, in April of 1965, he gave a famous speech in which he said, we're not here to win territory, we're, we're here because we have an obligation to protect democracy, there's, there's something very Wilsonian about it. But then he also said, we will draw our troops back tomorrow if the North Vietnamese will pull back. And moreover, he said, we will, we will give a, a billion dollars uh, for a development uh, uh, project in uh, Southeast Asia. And we can make the Mekong Delta even greater than the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, was in the 1930s. He was already looking for some way just to negotiate and get out of there. He never, won even though he gave a speech about let's hang the old coon skin on the wall, I don't think Johnson ever seriously thought that there would be a, quote, military victory in the conventional sense there. Nixon was candid and explicit. All right. about that. Now you write in Enduring Vietnam, again, to make the, to make, we've talked about the first four years, set in the context of the Cold War, it makes sense, or it almost makes sense. The last four years, if you're going to pull out, why don't you just go home? Why does it take four years? So again, in my judgment, that you have to work a little bit, Jim, for viewers to understand why, why it took, so, took four years. So you, you argue here that Nixon had three objectives, draw down American troops while shifting the burden of the fighting to the South Vietnamese, to negotiate a final settlement with the North Vietnamese, and throughout this period to retain leverage over the North Vietnamese to cut a good deal with them. And the United States did shift the burden of the fighting to the South. It did engage in negotiations with the North Vietnamese, and it did, on your account in Enduring Vietnam, exercise leverage over the North. 
Nixon bombs Hanoi. He mines Hanoi Harbor. He bombs Laos and Cambodia. And he engages in an opening to China, which complicates the North Vietnamese relationship with one of their sponsors, China. And he engages in detente with the Soviet Union, which complicates the North Vietnamese relationship with their other sponsor, the Soviet Union. Why didn't it work? Well, he would say it did. All right. Uh, he would say it did. I, I, I'm not, it, it depends what the it is that works, I think, uh, Peter. Uh, you know, was he, was he really looking for some more time? Because by 1975, of course, the North Vietnamese are in, are in Saigon. They renamed it Ho Chi Minh City, and, and that's kind of the end of that chapter right. of the story. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger both, on a, on a number of occasions, referred to this as a bigger game. And I, I do quote them here, and, and I'm not by any means suggesting that they thought the war that was being fought there was a game. They, they knew right, how right, costly right. it was and how difficult it was. But they, were, they, were, they saw themselves as master on a bigger chessboard, and they were, they were looking to the Soviet Union. They, Nixon did initiate some new ties with the Soviet Union. He went he sent first Kissinger, and then he went to China. And he thought that would put more pressure uh, on uh, North Vietnam. He bombed heavily North Vietnam. In fact, there was a major uh, fuss because uh, the South Vietnamese, General Abrams, wanted some more air power because of a North Vietnamese, the Easter offensive of the North Vietnamese in the South. And Kissinger said, no, we need our planes for the North. And, and, and Abrams said, no, we have fights, fighting going on. And I talk about some of that. I talk about right. one kid who was killed in, in this, one American kid and uh, and uh, but the, they they saw this they saw the fighting and the who controlled Doc To in the highlands was a small piece of a broader chessboard that they right. were involved in so you but they did not want to Nixon you you, you you know Nixon and his personality he was not going to be the guy that cut would cut and run he was right. he was going to stay there and uh, I talked to, to to, to, I was on a, a trip uh, over to Normandy with, uh, with uh, David Eisenhower and Julie a oh, couple really? of years ago, and we had dinner together, and we both gave talks on the Normandy invasion, and he gave a wonderful talk about his grandfather. And I was, they, David asked what I was doing, and I said I was working on this book, and, and Julie said, oh, Vietnam. She said, they put a, should have put Lyndon Johnson in jail. She said, what a mess he handed to my father, and, and, mm -hmm. and Nixon, thought that. Now, in, in truth, Richard Nixon helped to create the mess himself. There was nobody who was more aggressively anti-communist in, in his rhetoric in the 50s and 60s. But it was, and, and when he was elected in 1968, he talked about a secret plan for the war. It's not clear that there was a secret plan, but it is clear that he knew, he recognized it was time to start drawing back. Right. And uh, he did that. Now, you make the point in Enduring Vietnam that in the first four years of the war, roughly 20-some 20, 20 thousand of our deaths occur. And in the second four years of the war, after the leadership in Washington has decided we're not going to win, we're not even going to try to win in any traditional sense, this long, complicated drawdown, the greater, roughly three-fifths of the casualties occur, more than 30,000. I think it was 000. a little bit, the proportion was a little bit less than that, but a significant number, 20-some thousand, uh, uh, Peter. I, I mean, you've, you've looked at this more recently than I, and no. so I, but uh, there's no doubt. Your point is, is, is still very clear. A lot of kids, 
died after that, and, and it became what changes for the experience in the experience on it, the ground. It changes in the a floor. lot because Thanks. word after Hamburger Hill, word came down to the Military Advisory Command, Vietnam, from the Pentagon. No more operations like this. And in the past, we've been seeking conflict, and they said try to decrease the casualties. We started Vietnamization in June of 1969. President Nixon uh, announced that, and basically the, 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 the Arvin, the South Vietnamese Army, was gonna bear the, 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 the larger part of the fighting. And so Americans start, got the word where before they were supposed to be seeking contact, now they were supposed to try to avoid it. And, and you end up with this sort of, you know, why are we here? And, and there is, I think that the stories of, of mutiny, of fragging, of other instances in the, in the combat units that I'm looking at are exaggerated. These kids handle themselves professionally. Even in the well, second, even final in the second phase. phase. But again, right. they, they were looking to protect themselves and their friends. They had lost any illusion. And, and, and it, it, it's an interesting question. Why, why does, why does a, why does a young man, uh, one of your sons or one of my grandsons, agree to go to war? You've, you've got to feel there's some broader purpose there. And, and this sense of a broader purpose had pretty much uh, evaporated by, by 69. We, they knew we were getting out of there. It was true in the, at the end of the Korean War. David Halberstam wrote about this. You know, who wants to be the one, who wants to die for a tie? Right. Who wants to be the last one to die in a war we're not going to win? And there was surely some of that attitude in Vietnam. All right. So here's how it ends. In June of 1973, Congress approves the Case Church Amendment prohibiting any further military action in Vietnam without congressional approval. Richard Nixon tries to oppose it, but he's all caught up in the Watergate mess. In August 1974, Nixon resigns. Ford becomes president. In March 1975, the North Vietnamese launch a major offensive in the South. Gerald Ford has no troops on the ground. We've already withdrawn combat troops. There are some advisors, but Congress has tied his hands with Case Church and other restrictions. There's nothing he can do. And so Saigon falls, and we see those pictures of people trying to grasp helicopter yeah. runner blades as the last helicopter leaves. And the North Vietnamese have the city by April, and they rename Saigon Ho Chi Minh City. It's over. So what does it all mean? When you talk to, let me try, I'm going to ask you f for two pieces of memory. You joined the faculty at Dartmouth College in 1969, which means you were teaching young men who went to Vietnam. I, I was. And, and now I, you, I, I even taught somebody who had been in Vietnam, and I interviewed for this book. All right. That's the, the, how, contrast the feeling in 69 with looking back on it all today. The vets that you interviewed what sense of meaning do they derive? Is it just a waste of time, a sorry passage in their lives and the lives of the nation? Or do they look back on it with some pride? Do, what, what meaning do they derive from it? Is there some consensus yeah. Or, yeah. or overall tenor to the I, way I they look back? I think that's such an important question, and I, and I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, I think that they, there is a sense of, of pride that they had served well. They are asked to serve, and they serve. And they the, did the, it. There's not a sense of, of closure, of completion, uh, at least among the people that I interviewed, the accounts that I read, and the, the work that I've done. There's, there's not the bitterness that, that you, there, there's some bitterness, but not that you might think about, well, we, we were 
cheated out of a victory. There's some of that, you know, had, had, had Johnson come in with more, had Nixon not walked away. But I think by then most people, most people who went to Vietnam probably had some real enthusiasm when they went there. We were here to fight uh, the communists. If we don't fight them here, we'll be fighting them in Los Angeles. I have to say that the guys that I interviewed, within a matter of, 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 of weeks, they had backed off from that. They realized that the South Vietnamese were not happy that they were there. The villagers who were so disrupted had so many casualties and were the, the you know, were caught up in a war that they didn't uh, surely understand and didn't want. Uh, they realized that, that, that the Ar Arvin, the uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam, was not involved in combat the way they were. This was a conscious decision made in Saigon, but uh, they were the ones carrying the fighting. They thought, why, why, why are we, are we here? And many of them said, you know, the, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese are fighting harder, more professionally, more aggressively than Arvin. Why are we here? And so I, I think that there is a disillusionment on the part of many. They, they, they didn't like uh, the protesters particularly but uh, they also recognized that some of their younger brothers and sisters were among the protesters. So there was not the, the, the hard-edged hostility. Jane Fonda is still a symbol to them of, uh, of, of some of the hard-edged hostility. They, they, they clearly don't like, uh, nor do I, people who rooted for the Viet Cong to win, uh, to, to defeat the Americans, to, 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 to injure them. But uh, I think that they had moved, uh, they had moved beyond it. Jim, let me try. There's one, one author, one serious author of whom I'm aware, who makes what I consider a reasonably compelling argument that in some basic way the war was still a success. Michael Lind, in his book, Vietnam, The Necessary War. Yeah. This is a longish quotation, but, but I want to try it out and sure. see what you make of the argument. Quoting Michael Lind, the fall of Indochina in 1975 resulted in a geopolitical catastrophe for the United States, a worldwide Marxist-Leninist revolutionary wave. You see it in particular in Africa, countries, third world countries shift over to their allegiance to the Soviets and discernible bandwagoning, that is countries getting on the bandwagon with the Soviet Union by frightened American allies and neutrals in the mid 1970s, close quote. You might also add to that the boat people, thousands of people fled Yep. South Vietnam. As bad as all that was, though, Lind argues that it could have been worse. Quote, in 1965, war begins, Mao was trying to renew the communist revolution at home and export it through Southeast Asia and the world. In, 1970, in 1975, Mao's last revolutionary spasm was a decade behind, and China was a de facto ally of the United States against the Soviet Union. While the U.S. effort in Vietnam had bought time for the non-communist countries of the area to achieve a degree of political stability and rapid economic growth, close quote. As badly as the war ended, even though the United States never did negotiate freedom or independence for South Vietnam, my goodness, it would have been worse if we hadn't gone in in 1965. Mao has the Cultural yeah. Revolution, China is filled with vigor, and a decade later, we're in the Brezhnev era. The Soviet Union even feels, we now, we now understand they're beginning to have doubts about their system. Mao is a spent force. The people who fought in Vietnam saved much of the world. Yeah, you it, buy it? It, it, I, I, 
I buy parts of it. I, You're I, open to it at least. I, I am open to it, and and you know, a couple of things: a, a, a unified communist Hanoi-controlled Vietnam, as we've learned, has not proved to be as hostile and as threatening to the United States as some feared it would be. Uh, part of that, uh, I think Lynn is right, Lynn, Lynn's a good scholar, I think had to do with, the, you know, by 1975, Mao no longer could, could exercise a lot of control. China couldn't. But it's also the case, I'm not sure they could have in 1965. I think that the people who understood Vietnamese history, and there weren't that many in the United States at that time, would have known the long-standing tension between Vietnam and China. I have, a, I have on my desk uh, something I picked up in Vietnam a few years ago. It's a, it's a tortoise with a sword uh, in, its, in its mouth. And uh, it's based on a Vietnamese myth uh, about one time historically when the Chinese oppressors uh, were controlling or trying to control Vietnam and uh, the Vietnamese were not certain that they could uh, resist them. Uh, this tortoise, huge tortoise came out of the lake with a sword in its mouth and that inspired the people. It's, it's a symbol in Vietnam. It inspired them to fight back. There had long been a historical tension there. Mm -hmm. We've seen that since 1975, obviously. And, and you know, I, I think that, that Ho Chi Minh uh, was a communist. He had studied in, in, in Russia in the 1920s and 30s, but he also was a nationalist. And I think that, that, that part of it was that, that, that Vietnam proved not to be as threatening. It was not a, a, mm -hmm. it was not a domino that fell. Now, the, 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 the important question is, would it have been 10 or 12 years earlier had we not resisted? And that's, that's a question you know, that, that, that none of us, we can only speculate on. I expect it could have been more difficult, it could have been more complicated, it's not clear how it would have evolved even then. Right. Last question, Jim. Revolutionary War. America achieved its independence. Civil War. The United States ended slavery. Second World War. We defeated a militarist Japan and Nazi Germany. What's the one sentence that students need to grasp, need to understand, that they can carry about the Vietnam War? That's a good question. Uh, I've, I've, I've not, I've, you know, if you've I, I'm known, asking a man who's written <laughs> no, but you've, you've 70, known me well 70, enough. 80, I, words. I don't do one sentence answers <laughs> to many things, Peter Robinson. You've known me enough years, but uh, I think it, it it demonstrated both some of the delusions of a post-war world where where there was a sense that that somehow it was our responsibility to deal with every problem everywhere but also uh, did represent uh, a real strength and commitment on the part of, of a lot of Americans. We're asked to serve our country and we'll do it. And that's, that's the story that I want to tell here. Jim, let's close. Why don't I'd like to hear some of your words in your voice. Would you close by reading a passage from Enduring Vietnam? Oh, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to read this. And I spoke at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in uh, 2009, and, and I told a couple of stories there. But I wasn't intending to write this book at that time, mm -hmm. but, but I did mention this, this mm. young man. I'd grown up in Galena, Illinois, an old mining town. I worked for a time there in the mines, and my boss was a World War II veteran with a Purple Heart. He was a good man and a good boss. I came to know his son as an English student at the local high school when I taught there in a student teaching program. This young man, Michael Lydon, had died in May 1969 with 187th on Hamburger Hill. 
when a rocket-propelled grenade fired by a North Vietnamese soldier struck him and killed him instantly. So I dug a small hole and I left behind a piece of lead sulfide called galena. And I, I just would interrupt for a moment here. This was in the midst of talk. I climbed Hamburger Hill when I was there, and I, and I asked two North Vietnamese soldiers who had fought the Americans there that I had interviewed and met in Alaoui if they would climb the hill with me, and they did. And so at the top, I pulled this piece of lead uh, out of my pocket. I've been keeping this on my desk since I picked it up in the Graham mine 50 years earlier. Now a small piece of his hometown could remain in Vietnam on top of the hill that my young friend never reached. This book is about his war. James Wright, author of Enduring Vietnam and President Emeritus of Dartmouth College, thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson.